0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org.
2: Become a member during our 2017 summer drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now.
3: Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on Eric.org I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkell Here today with pastry chef Stella Parks, who charmed a sweet tooth constituency in Lexington, Kentucky, for sweets and on her blog, Brave Tart. So, while she wasn't necessarily reinventing dessert, she fortified them with plenty of sugar, butter, chocolate, leading her to document the history of things like chocolate chip cookies, which... Proceed Ruth Wakefield's 1938 Toll House chocolate crunch cookies, I'm told. Cakes, pies, donuts, snacks, puddings, candy bars, all in her book project Brave Tart, iconic American desserts. She also runs the pastry program for Serious Eats, reconditioning dessert as something to seek rather than just wait until the end of a meal. Now, let's talk about the arc of a meal and why something sweet why something pastry ends up at the end rather at the beginning. I, as children, we're almost preconditioned to eat sweets all the time. Ask for that over vegetables.
2: That, I mean, that's very true. Yeah. Maybe we should have dessert first. Um, you know, I think for me personally, uh, when I have something sweet, it kind of cuts off my appetite. So I think that probably has a big influence. If you start off the meal with something sweet, you're, you're kind of ruined. Yeah, For the rest of the meal, you're like, ugh. <laughs> but it closes it out. So then after a meal, you have a bite of something sweet. It, it winds down your appetite, and you can kind of feel sated and ready to move on.
3: Yeah, but you're not a sweet-tooth, all-day-around kind of snacker. Well, I, I know you hide stuff in your freezer.
2: I definitely hide stuff in my freezer. A, a lot of it is this, this line of work corrupts a person. Um, so when you snack on like cookie dough and bites of caramel and whipped cream and things like this all day long at the end of the day, you're just like, I need a big piece of salt and some cheese and whatever um so yeah i i personally don't have a strong sweet tooth just because of my work but i love desserts obviously otherwise i wouldn't be doing i guess it's
3: kind of like trusting a bald barber
2: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah yeah you gotta eat a lot of it yeah
3: but at the same time so lexington kentucky sadly all i know about kentucky and its food history is the hot brown out of Mm -hmm. louisville
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
3: are there regional desserts kind of like boston cream pie that are staples of that area
2: Yeah, we have a couple. Um, Blackberry jam cake is one. Uh, Apple stack cake, another kind of Kentucky Appalachia sort of dessert. Uh, Also, no-bake cookies, I am discovering, have strong roots in eastern Kentucky. And this is like a a kind of a fake fudge of um, boiled up butter and milk and sugar, chocolate, peanut butter, and oatmeal and you just like dollop it out on a tray but it's essentially a type of fudge with oats mixed into it and i always thought it was just like kind of classic retro 1950s goofiness um but the more i've been researching the recipes the more i'm finding that it has a really strong connection to eastern kentucky in particular um and i've been finding this on twitter too i was tweeting about it that i was working on this recipe and the only people who responded have family in kentucky and specifically eastern kentucky and i was like this is getting eerie now. Um, So, yeah, so that's, like, an interesting thread that I haven't, like, confirmed. it. I have no, like, you know, patient zero of the recipe. Yeah, I thought
3: it was just a pre-air conditioning thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, who knows? But um, that would definitely describe a lot of (laughs) conditions sometimes in Eastern Kentucky.
3: Yeah. Well, what, what I love about not only what you did on your blog, but obviously what you document in your book is this idea of there's lineage to all this, you know, we mm-hmm. didn't just arrive at a chocolate chip cookie and Oreo Absolutely. And that, you know, it, it started somewhere and it, it maybe socio or political or economic. Um, it wasn't necessarily the invention of a pastry chef. It was almost utilitarian, like out of necessity, these things were used. And let, let's start specifically about the chocolate chip yeah, cookie that, because I find that fascinating. That is
2: a really great example. There's this idea that chocolate chip cookies were a thing that was invented as if, you know, one, one day no one had ever thought to put chocolate in cookie dough. And one day the light bulb went off and it happened. And, you know, the sto- story goes that it was an accident that either the, the chocolate fell into the mixer at the Toll House Inn and, and Ruth Wakefield rolled with it. Or that she ran out of nuts for a recipe and she thought to replace it with chopped chocolate. Um, all these like kind of like like stories, like urban legend style. Um, But it's totally bonkers to think that nobody in the history of all humanity ever put chocolate into a cookie dough prior to like 1938. Like, that's insane. We already had Snickers bars and Butterfingers at that point in our history. So that's just crazy. And so, you know, like looking around, you can absolutely find examples of chopped chocolate being mixed into cookie dough well into the late 1800s. So I'm just kind of blowing up myths that chocolate chip cookies were invented when really they evolved and have always been not always been around, but similar desserts. Yeah, have, but, have come along and grown yeah. out from that.
3: Also, at turn of the century, you know, chocolate prices were falling, and mm-hmm. drugstores had chocolate soda, chocolate sundays, to- chocolate shakes, and even here in Brooklyn, yeah, oh, was it Rockwood and Company was the first yeah. one to have chocolate sprinkles? But you've so done
2: your homework. I,
3: it's a good book. It's a very, very <laughs> good you. book. I, you know, I love uh, single subjects in history, but th- this is like. 50 single-subject books in one, which, which was, I was just spin <laughs> with, because you can kind of read chapter by chapter by chapter.
2: Yeah, they're little bite-sized morsels but, there.
3: You know, again, with this chopped chips, you you end up talking about maybe that's how or chocolate was scraped before. Uh-huh. And it would kind of heat up in your hand. But you also are like myth-busters and try to do these things yourself yeah. to see whether or not they're relevant, they work today, or, you know, they make better cookies mm-hmm. because of how we've, now conditioned chips to be.
2: Yeah, so so the background is that there were these chocolate cookies um, that involved two cups of grated chocolate was what these recipes, these recipes in the like, late 1800s were calling for, um, early 1900s. And first of all, two cups of grated chocolate is a fucking ton of chocolate. Like, that's a lot um, in terms of volume and, and the work it would take to get there. So I um, went to the antique mall and found a... Um, Rasp dating from the late 1800s and was like, okay, let's grate some chocolate. And it takes like 45 minutes to grate two cups worth of chocolate. And, you know, these weren't like fancy microplanes that people could just like plow through it with. So my personal theory is that people are like, to hell with this. I'm just going to chop up the chocolate as finely as I can um, because I'm not going to grate this all day, especially if someone didn't have a rasp or a grater that fine. Uh, And thus chocolate chip cookies were born. We can't prove it, but, you know, anything happens in a kitchen it's practicality rules the day and i think that a lot of people um baking in that time period would have been you know pretty fed up with this idea of in a pre-air conditioned environment um even in the winter it could be very warm you know with the stoves going all day and and that sort of thing so
3: what amazes me is that these kind of recipes stood the test of time or you know i know they morphed and Mm -hmm. changed and became what they are today but you you said the word volume and let's talk about why that's so important, because the first two tenets of the book is a pint isn't a pound and why we weigh things. The importance of a scale couldn't be stressed more. And why is that?
2: Uh, well, because the you know, volume uh, is a very mutable thing. Um, and in the case of chocolate chip cookies, just to kind of put this into example, two cups of grated chocolate um, weighs just like three to six ounces, depending on how finely the shavings are grated. Um, it's like, you know, really fluffy, like grated Parmesan. So it, it fills up the cup, but there's not much there, but two cups of chopped chocolate is about 12 ounces. And if you're just looking at volume, you, you don't know the difference. You're just like, Oh, it's two cups either way. And so that's why I think this error could have been made in the first place because someone's just like, they don't know how much chocolate they need. The recipe calls for two cups of grated chocolate And they have no frame of reference for, you know, is this a pound of chocolate? Is this, you know, six ounces of chocolate? What's going on? So they just kept chopping chocolate until it filled up those two cups, uh, unwittingly putting 12 ounces of chocolate into their cookies, which is exactly how much chocolate we find in a bag of chocolate chips today. Um, And kind of also leading to that. That's why I think that's how much chocolate goes into it. It
3: cuts prep time, cleanup time in half it guarantees consistent results eliminates loss and it makes it easy to customize and yeah kind of let's talk about that final point because if you create a solid base for something like a chocolate chip cookie how easy is it to iterate then
2: oh there's so there's so much you can do and so much you can play with presuming you have everything locked down and and like you were saying about you know why is weight so important um or mass if you're using grams um you're just taking out this variable that you know you're using as much flour as as the recipe indicates and you know that you're using as much sugar as the recipe indicates and and these things are no longer in question these things are no longer possibly going to like roll away from you if you're using volume it very well could Um, and once you've got that established then you've got this freedom to to come and be creative and come and do other things because you're not worried about your foundation crumbling out from underneath you, so you can like you know substitute the butter for brown butter or start you know incorporating malted milk powder into the dough um, and doing other things to to bring out different flavor profiles because you're not really worried about the fundamental underlying structure <laughs> coming apart on you. Yeah, uh, were
3: you this analytical when you started cooking in restaurants, or even when you started the blog Brave Tart?
2: I don't think that I was. I think for me, it it really came about doing recipe testing for my book and realizing how much could go wrong when this recipe is put into someone else's hands. Um, I had a phenomenal team of recipe testers helping me. Um, once I developed the recipes that, you know, I passed it along and they would, and they would make things and bring me feedback. And I just, I honestly didn't know so much could go wrong. Uh, and then I realized like, well, this is my fault things are going wrong because I didn't say I, I didn't say what room temperature butter meant I just assumed that well of course if it's like you know 102 degrees in your kitchen your squishy butter is going to be bad and of course if it's winter your frozen butter is going to be bad and never actually said well, you know what what is the temperature that it needs to be and so those recipe testers helped me kind of realize these like vagaries that were built into my recipes and so you know in the book instead of saying you know butter soften to room temperature I'll say you know 65 degrees um a cool room temperature and just instead of leaving it to chance,
3: flour. I mean, there are other ingredients <laughs> yeah. that have to be specific temperature for them to work. It's not just turning on an oven and throwing something in at 450. It's all yeah. these things have to be at the right place at the right time as well.
2: Yeah, and and the, you know, mentioning flour, we we're talking about this earlier about um, your ambient temperature. Like if it's you don't you're not running the air conditioner in your kitchen and you grab some flour out of the pantry to make a pie dough, your flour could be 78 degrees uh, just sitting there like being warm and that's a heat source to butter. So, you know, you think like, Oh, well I've got my butter all chilled down, but you like overwhelm it in this giant volume of flour and it warms the butter right up and you've got this sticky dough and then people blame the humidity and you're like, mm, it's not the humidity. That's a problem here. Flour is actually only capable of absorbing about 1% of its weight. Scott at Boston university did this, um, kind of personal study, not like a formal trial, but just, he was a professor there and wanted to, got kind of quantify how much moisture could flour absorb and it was like less than one percent of its own weight so it's like it's not really the humidity in this I, case it's the
3: i'd love to know what other kind of a, a myths you debunk about what people blame other than themselves
2: um well people blame their ovens but that's a valid point a lot of ovens are actively sabotaging everyone's efforts um especially older electrical models that might like cycle in and out of the heat so like it kicks on and it gets like really hot and then it kind of like fades off and the temperature like you know falls pretty severely. Um, if you've got an oven that really like cranks up the heat in your kitchen, you know maybe it's not insulated very well and it's like leaching a lot of heat into your kitchen. Uh, yeah, there's I mean there's a lot, there's a lot there's a lot to control for.
3: Yeah, I mean I read the comments and I see the responses on Serious Eats alone and you put forth a recipe and you're so excited (laughs) and you say something like, I know where this is going. Yeah. yeah. But I am so glad to share this with the world. And then you get reactions. What do you do as someone who writes a recipe? Do you, do you answer all those? Do you readjust? Do you pander to the crowd?
2: Um, I I really like helping people because I want, I mean, it's, I I don't want to be like, you know, this militant baking figure that's like my way or the highway. So if someone, you know, needs to like, adapt something for gluten-free or for nut-free or lactose-free vegan I'm I'm really happy to like jump in and like help at least tell them from experience what I know about adapting a, a particular style of recipe or what they should look out for what their concerns should be um and then you know we on series eats in particular we famously have a lot of people who want to sous vide everything <laughs> um and I'm just like no absolutely not please please stop um but generally I, I like to help people make these adaptations although sometimes I think people don't necessarily take into consideration the role an ingredient is playing when they're wanting to substitute it um i had a recipe uh for sour cream pound cake and several people like oh can i use greek yogurt it's like they actually have very different like profiles in terms of acidity and um, protein content um similar protein content overall but greek yogurt's higher in casein and so it can make baked goods really fluffy which is good for layer cake and bad for pound cake so it's like they're, they're, they're different you can't just willy-nilly substitute yeah. everything.
3: I mean, we were talking prior to this episode about acidity screwing up leavening agents mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and about how to combat that. But, you know, there, there is so much science. There is so much understanding of pastry or baking before actually getting into it. It's not necessarily a box mix.
2: Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of... The ingredients are all serving a specific role, and they're all serving the recipe. And... It's nice if we can adapt a, a recipe to help better serve an individual baker, but it's also important that we realize what the ingredients are doing and, and that you can't screw with that.
3: I love in your book the, the the term glossy when we talk about brownies. Oh, yeah. What is a glossy fudge? How can you simply explain to someone uh, what the best brownie is?
2: Oh, man. I mean, admittedly, that's very subjective. I'll, I'll go ahead and say that I accept that there are a lot of valid interpretations of what the best brownie is. But I do like a good glossy fudge brownie, that really thin paper top sheen that develops and almost kind of like levitates off the brownie and peels away from the, the main brownie underneath. And there's been a lot of speculation as to what this is. Some people say, oh, it's it's a little bit of a meringue, like it's the whipped sugar kind of rising to the top. And, and some people say, like, oh, no, it has to do with the cocoa butter. And I do think it has to do with the cocoa butter. But specifically, I think it has to do with the interaction between cocoa butter and actual butter. Um, I've noticed that in baked goods that use mixed fats, they tend to have a very shiny crust. And so I think it's just the different melting points of the different fats um, layering out in a different way. And so the cocoa butter rises up and the butter rises like right beneath it or, you know, whatever, however they're interacting. And this has not been a formally studied or broken down, but I have noticed that in mixed fat baked goods, you know, you do see this kind of sheen. So that's what I think is going on in brownies. So my recipe uses um, both cocoa powder and melted chocolate and butter so that you have this like kind of like trio of i mean the two cocos are obviously coming from the same source but you've got like three different fat sources in the recipe working together and along with eggs um and they're just they're they're it's like a mirror their surface is like so glossy when it comes out of the oven it's just it's very beautiful to me i love it
3: see all this time i thought mixed fat was just dipping a donut in the pudding but we're going to get into that in we
2: can get into that later <laughs> you've
3: been listening to the food scene on heritage Radio network.org we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back
1: Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes. Feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs. And try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org.
3: Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkill, here today with Stella Parks, Brave Tart. Um, the origins of that name, I mean, obviously a tartan, you know, a, a skirt and, you know, the, the the you know half face paint. The blueberry term- war paint. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: my brother came up with it. I, um, a friend of mine, Roscoe Weber, and I were going to start a blog together, and we didn't know what to call it, and I wasn't necessarily especially keen on starting a blog it was it was really like his he had this like creative outlet he was like looking for and I was like I mean okay sure if you want to um so I was like I was game for it but I didn't really have this like strong concept of it and I was talking with my brother about like yeah we're gonna start this blog and I guess it's just gonna be like me doing whatever it is I do and desserts and sarcasm and he was like well you know what you should call it and I was like tell me and he's like brave chart and I was like Man, just like (laughs) knocking it out. That's amazing. Um, So I was like, yeah, sold. I'll take your idea. So I did.
3: Yeah. You know, it it was such a great blog because it was almost your subconscious coming to the top. It was such a stream (laughs) of consciousness that you were creating a record for almost no one other than yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it was this intimate look into what you were thinking as a pastry chef. And I, I know you've admitted in the past that, you know, some of those recipes might not have worked or some of those recipes were just like, yeah, absolutely such jumbles. Um, but what did you get out of that practice?
2: Um, I, well, first of all, it it was really cool to plug into the blocking community. There are so many people there who just like so warmly welcomed me into this, like kind of just group of people who are online doing their thing and collaborating and having a good time. Um, and meeting with people on Twitter and, and Facebook and just like, Connecting with that group of people was very meaningful at the time. And just, I felt in Kentucky, I was so isolated from what was happening in the food world that meeting all these other people doing this thing was it kind of eased that up, and, and that was phenomenal. Um, and yeah, the recipes that I was putting on there were for my own use because it was easier than having a notebook and that meant I could get to them anytime, anywhere. And I wouldn't, you know, be committed to a physical object that I needed to have on me. Like a lot of um, pastry chefs do. And I was glad to share. I didn't, you know, if someone wants to look at my notes, um, they're welcome to it. I just didn't have any concern whether or not they could pull it off because it wasn't for them. It was for me. Um, and so people would like try these recipes and have a really hard time with it and, yeah, those recipes are are difficult because I I didn't necessarily articulate like, oh, what temperature should the butter be? And what was the protein content of my flour? And what percentage, you know, fat was in my cream? And and these details that are necessary to successfully replicate someone's dessert. Um, Or, you know, what temperature did I cook the caramel to, et cetera. Um, Because I I knew. And that's all. They were just like my own reference points for for the recipes. Um, And then that did kind of open my eyes to how difficult it is to write a recipe for the average home cook to be able to successfully execute and you know gave me a greater appreciation for that but also that there are a lot of people who are hungry for a little bit more of a complicated recipe that they wanted to like have a project and not just like you know have this like low-key uninvolved mindless dessert in their life they really wanted something that they crafted that they created and they made by hand Um, and that was very inspiring to see from other people but I did enjoy the outlet of just you know being able to write about what I was going through in the restaurant and the sagas that I would have there and like, you know, coming into work and finding the power had gone out and all my ice cream had melted and the heartache of that. And just being able to share that, you know, life in the kitchen is not always this extremely fun, um, fake television episode of happiness and team spirit. And that there's like some, you know, real ups and downs and being able to share that was kind of cathartic for me.
3: Yeah. You know, what's kind of been amazing is seeing this book is such a departure from that blog in the Mm -hmm. sense that, you're not necessarily trained to create in a vacuum and, and use yourself as your only reference point. Um, you're really replicating, like the title says, iconic American mm-hmm. desserts. And that is daunting because people know those reference points. Yeah. So when you give them something like candy bars, for instance, you know, or, or specific brands, uh, Crunch Bars, Three Musketeers, Milky Way, Snickers, they know what those are supposed to look like and taste like. Do they realize how complex they are?
2: Um, no, I, I I don't know that people you know because you think like this is cheap junk, right? It comes from the convenience store or it's something you know you just you buy in the grocery store and it's not important or special. Um, and so I don't think people realize that. Crunch bars are a good example. Um, they actually have malt in them, and so you know we often and, and recipes in, in the restaurant world you know, like, oh, you know, he uses, he uses malt powder in this recipe and it gives it this like interesting flavor. They use this type of malt powder and encourage more fermentation and, um, they use barley malt syrup and that's the trick to bagels. And like, we really value malt as an ingredient and, you know, the humble crunch bar has some malt in it and that gives it this like unique depth and kind of like toastiness of flavor. So, um, I tossed the Rice Krispies and, um, malted milk powder to kind of mimic a little bit of that instead of just saying, here's like, you know, cereal and chocolate, we're done. Um, really trying to bring out that full flavor of, like, what makes a Crunch Bar a Crunch Bar.
3: And I've also seen a lot of people trying to replicate Oreos, which you call... I can't even say the word. Foreos? (laughs)
2: Foreos. (laughs) Foreos.
3: Yeah. Um, Why is it important to be able to give people the tools to make these rather than just saying, Oreos are the shit. Go buy some Oreos.
2: Yeah. I mean, and they are, so you should. Yeah, That's (laughs) that's completely valid. Um, But for me... my like oreo revelatory moment was when i was actually living in japan and i hadn't had a lot of homesickness but i was um walking through a grocery store and just caught this like flash of blue out of the corner of my eye and just kind of glanced over and saw there was a box of oreos sitting on the shelf and i was like oh my god oreos so i just kind of bought them on this like nostalgic whim it just like was this like powerful reminder of home and i was like okay i'm gonna get some of those um, but then tasting them later, it was just like it really was like time travel. I was sitting in my like apartment and just like had a bite and the flavor was so just nostalgic and the texture and, and the bitterness and the sweetness and it was just an amazing experience and that's what I wanted. I wanted to say, you know, like I wanna recreate this so I can have it when I want it and it's something that I made because there's something satisfying about making it yourself. And I definitely say if, if you're don't find the act of baking to be a satisfying thing, then like, don't do it. I'm not saying like, this is better than Oreos or you're a better person. Cause you do this, like whatever, it's fun. And if you don't think it's fun, then you shouldn't do it. Like just go buy some Oreos. Um, but for me personally, I wanted to be able to make them cause they were part of my, my childhood memories, my growing up. And I think that's true of an overwhelming number of people who grew up in America. Um, that these are like our kind of a cultural touch points that we all have in common And there's something nice about it's the holidays. We have people for Christmas and you want to have like a little something for dessert. Like make some Oreos. Like it's cool. Like just do it. And you want it to to taste the same. You want it to be like an Oreo, not this vaguely Oreo inspired sandwich cookie. So I I definitely go to some extreme lengths to try and make sure we get that flavor right.
3: Are there specific summer things that you make? I know there was a strawberries and cream recipe in in there. I'm a key lime pie oh, yeah. kind of person. I mean, year-round, but really, yeah. I think about it during the summer months, whether or not it's related to Florida or citrus, which is actually opposite season. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you bake right now?
2: What do I bake right now? Well, right now, Serious Eats is definitely dominating my baking schedule, um, and I'm working on a strawberry cake right now, um, which is not in the book. It's one one just for Serious Eats. Um, but I'm, I'm a cake person, but last year... Um, everyone at series eats was like we need some pies so i started doing a bunch of pies and i was working on pies for the book previous to that so i was kind of already in, in the zone but something clicked and suddenly i was like i love pie and so i have in this last year become a huge pie person so i've been baking a lot more pies also just for personal pleasure
3: all butter pastry crust yeah what does that mean and how does that change pies as we know it
2: <laughs> well i don't know that it maybe it does change pies as we know it um so i use all butter some people you know like when a get a, a percentage of like Crisco or lard or, you know, some kind of alternate fat in there for flakiness. Um, but I found, you know, with just enough butter, you can, you can do anything you want and just like keep piling it in there and it works. Um, but what sets my, my recipe is um, equal parts flour and butter, which is a really a lot of butter <laughs> for a pie dough. But what that does is it, it kind of saturates the dough so that it's resistant to moisture absorption. So when you make a fruit pie you don't have to like parbake the butter crust and you don't have to you know settle for i always thought fruit pies were mushy on the bottom and that was like an inevitable experience like it's a fruit pie fruit is mostly water like this is the only possible outcome you could have but really that's just the result of a dough that's like relatively lean and dry it's like really thirsty right so you put it in contact with all this you know wet moist fruit and it just sucks it up like a sponge but if you go ahead and front load the dough with a lot of butter it creates this, like, moisture barrier, and the, the the crust is a little bit resistant to that. And then because of the butter, it crisps up really nicely. So, like, my fruit pies are all crispy, golden brown on the bottom um, from their time in the oven, and there's no, no sogginess at all, and that's kind of awesome. Yeah,
3: and they're flaky, like, laminated doughs, like croissants. I mean, yeah. when, when I tasted it, I, I you know, uh, I was at the Serious Eats kitchen, and Vicky, the photographer, had made your pie and brought it in, and Daniel, uh, the cook there, could not wait and just kind of started eating it, and Vicky kept on saying, "No, no, no! You can't eat it now. Yes, let it cool." And I think there was actually a specific temperature to serve the pie at, but eighty degrees. It was it was eaten at way before that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just ratted Daniel out, but so I kind of just ate it right after him. I'm, like, I'm not going to let this go to waste yeah. without even knowing what it really was, yeah. other than a cherry pie. pie. But it, it is a revelation having that kind of crust in a pie, and you know, again, not not having to really soggy bottom crust as, as the, the preconception of what pies are, um, and a little bit of salt in there.
2: Oh yeah. That makes me really happy. Um, I mean, obviously that's the goal is that my recipes should, someone else should make them, but that, you know, I have never made anything for you, but you've had one of my recipes that someone else made and that it, that it was what it's supposed to be and crisp on the bottom. And that's awesome.
3: Yeah. And also my favorite thing is kind of your... Your willingness to save money on butter and spend it on chocolate. Oh, yeah,
2: cheap butter all the way. Why is that? It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, I did a test on sugar cookies. I used to do this all the time um, when I was working in restaurants because I could kind of like crowdsource like a giant, like, hey, everybody, you want to come by the restaurant on Friday and eat a bunch of desserts and tell me what you think? And like, you get so many volunteers. It's amazing. Um, So I would do like all these like kind of blind taste testings um, of things. And so I did. I went and made, sugar cookies with every different type of butter you could imagine and nobody could taste the difference that you know the the votes were you know evenly sprinkled across the board nobody noticed any type of flavor difference i was accused i took a giant batch to my brother's office and he's got you know a bunch of staff there and i was like okay you guys tell me you know what you think and like you're trolling us this is the same cookie (laughs) over and over again there's no difference um and the only real difference is in in higher fat cookies they spread more um because they have you know more butter and less water um but in a sugar cookie, that's not a desirable quality. And In fact, most American baked goods, European-style butter, is a bad call in general because the recipes are formulated for American butter, which is a little bit um, lower in fat and higher in water. And that added water content kind of helps with gluten development, which gets the cookies chewy. And that's a quality we do want. And when you switch to a European-style butter, you get like a little bit more crumbly tender from the added fat. Um, and so, yeah, you can't taste the difference. You can't taste the butter, especially if there's a lot of stuff going on in the cookies, like, you know, good chocolate and toasted nuts and malt powder and all kinds of stuff. Like, the butter is, like, this delicate nuance thing. Like, save it for your toast in the morning to have, like, some really great jam. Um, it's going to be lost in the mix, and its attributes aren't really that great. So, yeah, I'm a big, cheap butter girl.
3: Well, you- like you said, you're a big American butter girl. And, and yeah. not that it's it's all cheap stuff. You know, there are good American buddies. Um I, I think the patriotism of American butter in American desserts yeah. makes sense leading up into Fourth of July. And obviously a lot of pies yeah. will be coming. But again, things are, are specific to this ingredient here Yeah, this, is, the this US. is our culture. Yeah. This is
2: our terroir. This is our, our, what, what we're making things with and the appropriate ingredients for our region. So... But also Sam's Club butter so cheap. I love it.
3: <laughs> and shout out to Sam's Club. Come and sponsor Heritage someday. <laughs> but thank you, Stella. Uh, th- this book, Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts, comes out later this summer, August. F-
2: August 15th.
3: Soon enough. But
2: Julia Child's birthday, I was told. Makes sense. I hope that's true. Yeah. <laughs> We need a fact check right? No,
3: we will not fact check okay. that because we're going to just rely on you for all our chocolate chip cookie needs going forward. Fantastic. Forwards. But thank you again for being on air. A big thank you to Mofad for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Vitor Engineering. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkel. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.